The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, in partnership with Kiwi Bank, the bank for Kiwi looking to get ahead in business and in life, a bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify, a bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers, that is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose, Kiwi making Kiwi better off. You might remember that time shortly after the end of the first lockdowns in 2020, when it felt like we were on the precipice of some awful disaster, and maybe we'd just managed to avoid it. And we all know what happened in the end. But it was an interesting moment when we thought, oh, maybe we dodged a bullet there. Maybe we actually did something that protected people who were vulnerable. And in that moment... Uh, uh, my wife and I decided to jump in a camper van because we were desperate to get out of the house and we went for a road trip, a roadie, up the East Coast through Napier and Gisborne and right around the Cape and right back to Whakatane and back through Murupara uh, and Galatea, which is where I had lived. This is in the central eastern Bay of Plenty, back past Lake Taupo and all the way to Wellington. For me, it was a chance to actually see some parts of the country I hadn't seen for a long time and get a sense of how the place felt 20 or 30 years after I'd last seen it. Now, 30 years ago, our economy went into this enormous convulsion of change, and it hurt a lot of people who were already vulnerable. I think everyone agrees now that the transition we had through the late 80s and early 90s was disastrous for at least a quarter of a million people in our country. People who um, were landless, um, who'd been discriminated against, stolen from, hurt for a couple of hundred years were hurt again and we're living with it day to day now in the uh, all the pain and the um, social uh, problems, health problems um, that uh, we see day in, day out now. And that's a direct result of failing with that transition in the late 80s, early 90s. Benefits were cut, uh, people were kicked out of houses, investments stopped. Uh, it was an example of how not to do a transition. We now face a massive transition, one where our climate is warming and there will be extreme events like uh, uh, Cyclone Hale and Cyclone Gabrielle, where people who are renting, living in bad houses, living on areas where they uh, probably shouldn't be living in because it's about to be flooded, uh, perhaps having a job which is dependent on um, the land use, uh, depending on forestry, for example, uh, people who are vulnerable for when the climate changes. And we have to think about how we deal with it. That trip for me was a sobering one around the East Coast because everywhere I looked, 
Houses were right next to streams. They were mouldy, they were cold, and many now, of course, were washed away or wrecked. Many of those people are now waiting and waiting and waiting to be told whether or not they'll get compensation from the government or the council. Councils have said they simply can't afford to fund managed retreat and to pay compensation to people whose houses have been wrecked. And right now we're living with a uh, in real time example of an unjust transition because the systems we have, the ones that say that uh, we should continually cut taxes and cut investment and make people pay for the new things that we do and not have the state pay, they, those systems just aren't working and none of our governments or councils have really adjusted to it. This week on When the Facts Change, we take a step back and look at what it would take to make some just transitions, to use, to develop policies and processes and, and do things from the ground up, perhaps sometimes from the top down, to actually engineer just transitions. We talk with Catherine Lining, who is a policy fellow at MOTU, and with Troy Baisden, a professor at Auckland University, who've produced, along with a bunch of others, a guide to engineering a just transition. Now, they haven't come up with any fancy new recommendations that will outrage or enthrall people. Um, it is really some of the sort of tools to make a difference day in, day out. But there are some good examples of how we have managed it well. For example, the cap-and-trade system for managing nitrogen emissions around Lake Taupo has cleaned that water um, body and uh, has been done with uh, uh, work between farmers and authorities. And agreements were made. People's systems had to change. Um, things were done differently, and now the water is cleaner. These things can happen. But as we speak, day in, day out now, the climate is changing. Just in the last week, four of the hottest days we've had, records were broken day after day after day. And uh, as we saw earlier this year on the East Coast and in Northland, um, we're going to see these disasters day in, day out. The climate is changing. We hope that we can engineer just transitions. That's this week on When the Facts Change. And welcome to When the Facts Change to Professor Troy Baisden uh, from the University of Auckland and Catherine Lining, who's from uh, Wellington and is a fellow, a policy fellow at MOTU and also um, in his spare time as a commissioner at the Climate Change Commission, but uh, for the purposes of this interview has her hat uh, firmly on the MOTU hat, not the climate change hat. Great to see you both. Thank you very much for coming in. Kia ora. Kia ora, Bernard. It's great to be on here. Now, Catherine, um, you yourself and a bunch of people have been working hard on a guide to just transitions for communities in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Could you give us a sense of the work you've been doing and, and what you've put out? Yes, we're very excited about uh, this guide. Um, it was just released on the 12th of July, and uh, we're finally getting it out after a year of very hard work across a team of over 25 contributors. Uh, the guide was created because really across Aotearoa, New Zealand, our communities are on the front line of change, you know, whether that's from the impacts of climate change, um, the shift to low emissions economy, 
disruptive technologies, changes to regional employment, increasing pressures on our natural environment, the effects of COVID. And this guide has been developed to really help communities plan for and respond to these kinds of challenges using processes that are inclusive and produce fair and equitable outcomes. Um, this guide is really based on a lot of research, both in Aotearoa and overseas. And it's it's really a practical guide. It's offering ideas, methods, and tools for communities um, to run their own just transition processes. It draws on tikanga and mataranga Maori and includes case studies of um, transitions in Aotearoa in the, across iwi and hapu and Maori communities as, as well as others. Um, it's really written for change makers in communities. And these are communities of all kinds, whether these are communities of place or interest or identity. Um, so it, the users might include people in an iwi or a hapu, a community NGO or a household a business or a union, um, a government or an educational institution or an organization providing uh, research and, and facilitation. Um, I, I think it's worth mentioning that there are three things the guide does not do. Um, first, it does not prescribe what just transition outcomes should look like. Bugger, I was looking for a list. Yeah, this this is about you know, communities leading processes to find their own um, shared visions and solutions and create their own pathways. Um, and secondly, the guide does not provide uh, policy recommendations to central government. Um, there are important processes underway for that. And, and thirdly, it's really designed as an introductory resource that can be applied broadly uh, with the recognition that more targeted guidance may be needed for specific communities types. Thank you. Troy, could you give us a sense of, you know, how you went about this, uh, this work? What material did you look at? Who did you talk to? You know, um, how did you develop this, um, this guide, which is some um, 60 pages of goodness? Yeah, well, the first thing is has to be that, you know, we were answering a call from MB to produce something that was a generalized guide to just transitions. They'd had just transitions work streams underway in Taranaki and in Southland. But, well, what about everywhere else? Should they develop a separate stream every time something big happens like that? What about the small things? And it turned out that um, Catherine had, and a group of researchers had been thinking about this for quite a while, but hadn't quite gelled how to get a research proposal together on it. So instead of doing research, let's just write the guidance was basically the, um, the main um, driving motivation here. And to do that, the main thing that we actually did, in addition to pull the researchers and all the information they had together, was um, run dialogue processes, which is a special process, a process that Moltu has developed and Catherine's really the guru in at this stage. And for me, it was great to get involved with that, help make it go online so we were able to reach deep into New Zealand, get particularly people you know, all the way up in the East Cape, communities across Aotearoa, um, particular um, emphasis on bringing Maori um, into the dialogues and getting them to be in clusters and breakout groups so we could see how things were different when Maori um, were really working together with others. Those all led to refining the topics to be the things that would be useful for communities and identifying how we can get communities um, to work with information that helps them develop leadership and vision 
Our tagline is really that with vision and leadership, disruptive changes can become just transition. Catherine, um, what did you find when you had these chats with um, people on the ground, so to speak? What what surprised you? What were their concerns? You know, what are what are the things that um, really resonated for you? I was really inspired and moved by the incredible mahi that these communities are doing. These are people who have been working for decades. Um, trying to transform um, communities at the social level, trying to look at how we manage the environment differently, trying to build up social enterprises, and and learning from their work what has uh, what has helped them to move forward, what the barriers have been, where they could use additional support. Uh, the people were really generous with their ideas and um, with their advice on how we could shape a guide that would support people who are trying to follow in their footsteps. Uh, and and I think one of the key messages that emerged from the dialogues for me was this: the importance of having shared uh, visions and values across groups to get things going. It's about creating safe spaces for people to have hard conversations. And we tend to jump to trying to agree on what the problems are before we really have talked through what people's needs are and and what different solutions might work and how they're going to impact on different people. So it's really about creating this space through shared visions and values about how to work together and, and come up with solutions that are really going to serve everybody and not just some of the people. So I think those were the types of ideas that I found really, really inspiring. Can you give us some examples of those sort of hard conversations that... Um are needed. Well, there's conversations about the shift to a low emissions economy. And, um, you know, when, when one door closes, another one opens, but it's really hard in the hallway. How do you know what you're transitioning from and what you're transitioning into? So having conversations with communities that are facing, um, you know, changes in employment um, and, uh, and the follow-on implications for that. Uh, communities facing changes in land use. Um, we talked to, you know, our, our dialogues were unfolding while the storms were hitting up mm. north. Um, you know, how are they responding to Cyclone Gabrielle and, and, and recovering from those kinds of shocks? Um, and, and how do you deal with, um, you know, looking ahead to, to sea level rise and managed retreat and the, the types of challenges that are facing our communities there? Uh, so those are, you know, there, there, there can be a range of options that have different implications for different types of businesses, different neighborhoods. And how do you talk through um, making this a manageable process for everyone? Troy, uh, could you um, give us a, a sense of what are the risks of an unjust transition? Because there might be a few people say, you know, we don't need to do anything. We've got the systems in place. Um, it'll just naturally be a just transition. Yeah, I think before I say what the risks are, is, is in a sense, I think people worry that putting too much discussion into things will lead um, yeah, to the risk that it never gets into a situation where it gels and leads somewhere. But actually, David Hall, one of our um, chapter leads for this, makes the point that the fastest and most enduring transitions are the just transitions, the ones where everybody has a chance to connect make sure, sure their visions coincide and actually head in the, in the same direction. And I think that's the real issue is that we've had a lot of difficulty in Aotearoa, New Zealand, trying to get people's paths to align before we go forward. And there we get resistance along the way. So that's David's point is that to overcome the resistance, we need exactly what Catherine's just talked about, where we get people to share 
there, there's sort of values and principles. And the guide provides really important ways um, to understand that and particularly to understand the tale Maori perspectives on that that help us do a better job of making sense of te tariti. So that's a big issue. Could you give us some examples of where um, there has been a just transition where rather than um, have something prescriptive, there was a step back to find some shared values and in the end they came up with a better, more uh, durable, faster solution? Yeah, my favorite example of that is the Lake Topol nitrogen scheme. So that is the world's first cap and trade scheme. We can learn a lot from it. And one of the first aspects of it, and I'd really like to tip my hat to Tony Petch, who was the architect of it. And I got involved as a fixer for some of the science around nitrogen accounting. But I learned so much from this from Tony because he was able to describe exactly why it worked. And I put it into the guide to describe how he created coincidence between the different people that all had things to say. He brought them together um, repeatedly. There was time allowed by Waikato Regional Council to do that. When people were told in 2001 the lake was at threat, that was also a threat to their land rights, their traditional way of life, to the values that Tuwharatoa had in the lake. And all these things had to have time for people to discuss and coincide he repeatedly began with simple phrasing so that people could see it. The problem is in the lake. The solution lies in the land. Um, there's a bit more in the guide, but one of the key things is that he, the process wasn't too fast. It allowed for hurt and burden to be acknowledged. They made rules, but they also built in flexibility. And, you know, ultimately that trap and trade system doesn't you know, it's mostly the cap, and people now acknowledge that it's worked. It's really preserved the quality of Lake Topol over time. Catherine, can you can you also you know give us a sense of the examples um, where it hasn't worked, where um, the wrong paths were taken, and even though you know our climate's only only um, one point something degrees uh, warmer, we're seeing more aggressive um, extreme weather events all the time, uh, what what does an unjust transition look like, an example of it? Well, I mean, in, in general terms, we can think of, of characteristics of, of unjust transitions um, where, you know, engagement is selective, the impacts are not um, understood or they're ignored, um, the minority voices don't get heard or are overridden, um, decisions are reactive, short-term, made in silos. The consultation is token and it happens after decisions are made. Uh, vested interests have undue influence. Um, the changes are very disruptive. Um, the outcomes perpetuate injustice and people suffer when they didn't need to. And I think we can all think of examples that, you know, where that resonates in terms of how some decisions have been made um, at all levels of government uh, in the past. And we have some interesting conversations in the guide about bottom-up versus top-down decision-making. And there have been efforts in the past to bring in more bottom-up decision-making. The, the guide highlights the Land and Water Forum as a particular example. Uh, but there are other examples as well, like the Green Growth Advisory Council, the Tax Working Group, where people have tried to bring take a more inclusive approach and develop bottom-up advice that goes into decisions. And uh, But then there's um, this uh, misalignment between what comes out from the bottom and the decisions that get made from the top. Uh, but um, what's interesting behind your question is what does it mean to succeed or fail in a just transition? 
And to me, there's always success in the effort of bringing people together to build relationships, to build capability, to build resilience. Um, and even if um, the process goes for a while and it doesn't fully fulfill um, the aspirations that people had, to me, that can still be a success because people have come together. They understand the problem more deeply. They've experimented with different solutions and figured out what has worked and what hasn't. And that helps to move us forward rather than being in a stalemate where we don't know how to talk to each other and we never try anything. I think we need to have um, you know, permission to experiment and to accept something as a failure without, without um, denouncing it as a failure. I'm wondering um, whether a just transition is um, a a win-win, as they say, or whether it's a zero-sum game. The reason I say this is that the way these issues are often framed is um, a just transition involves some rich people giving some money to to some poor people uh, or resources to um, manage that just transition uh, or being forced to change their lifestyles in a way they frankly don't want to? Or or could it be done in a way that is a win-win? Well, I mean, this this comes to, a, the, you know, a, a, an understanding of what a just transition means. And, and there is no single accepted definition of, of just transition. And we had some really interesting conversations about our group on this issue because we were reviewing international literature. And one of our members observed that a lot of the literature is about compensation schemes and saying, oh, yeah, a just transition is about compensation. If, you, if you're getting hurt more, you get paid more. And from the discussions in our dialogue and the broader research that we did, goodness, the just transition. Um, you know, framework is actually much broader than that. And uh, the dimensions that we've identified in our guide, and these are just features um, rather than a, a strict definition, is that just transitions really help us to take a systems approach that rejuvenates Māori, the life force. It's about bringing our social, economic, and environmental systems into balance. Um, secondly, we need to look at whether the processes are are healing injustice, whether that's past, present, or future injustice. And injustice takes many forms, and a lot of those forms cannot be solved through compensation alone. <laughs> compensation may pay, play a role, but that's certainly not what the full solution looks like. Then we need to ask ourselves, are these processes inclusive? Are the underserved and underrepresented voices being heard? And do we have these shared visions and values? And, and then we have to look at, are the outcomes fair? Do people perceive the outcomes as being fair and are they really fair? And of course, fairness depends on where you're standing. And that's where these difficult social conversations uh, have to come in. So to me, the win-win in just transitions is taking this broader approach that isn't just about the money and the compensation, but it's about are our systems working? Are the processes inclusive? Um, are, we, are we moving forward together? And are the outcomes fair? Win the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank's Chief Economist, Jared Kerr, on what's happening with inflation in 2024. Globally, inflation rose to really high levels. We saw inflation averaging over 10% uh, last year. Now central banks have reacted, they've tightened monetary policy, they've lifted interest rates to levels where it hurts. We've seen growth slow down and we're seeing inflation coming off, which is great news because we import a lot of inflation from the rest of the world and that imported inflation is easing. So half the job that we're trying to do locally is, is being done for us offshore. 
The other half, the domestic bit, well, that's the tough bit. That's the sticky inflation that's coming out of a housing market, it's coming out of construction, it's coming out of service industries, and it's going to be hard to contain. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Jared and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has the lowdown on everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market, the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. Join some of the superstars of the investment and business world as they share advice from their time in the US so you can make your mahi count in this massive market. The Investment Fix Podcast, brought to you by Invest New Zealand. Tune in today. Troy, I wanted to ask about that systems thinking because, you know, one of the complaints you hear back from people um, objecting to um, a particular uh, response to climate change is, well, um, this is a global issue and um, if we can't get everyone to agree, there's sort of no point on doing any of this and why should I give up my double cab ute when the Chinese are building a, a new coal-fired power station every three days. Um, what are some of the tips and tricks you've got in the um, the guide there to um, push back at, you know, oh, it's just too big and why should, what can we possibly do about it down here? Well, you know, in some ways I think the guide isn't really about that particular problem, but it is about bringing people together around the table. So part of the solution for that is simply that people have to be convincing that there's actually a problem to be solved. They have to talk to their neighbors or other members of the community of interest that they need to talk to. They need to bring people together, probably across a, a political spectrum, community organizations connecting with iwi or hapu or Maori organizations, with local government, with business, whatever is required to solve the problem. Um, in many cases, I think we'll see that um, the types of things that you mention, there's somebody who really sees that as a problem that we all benefit from solving, and that's the beginning of finding the vision. This is a generic guide. It's for people that can see a problem like that, that can say, hey, we can actually be leaders in showing how Aotearoa New Zealand can solve these problems and be a global example, a global leader. And I'm saying that without giving you any particular problem, but we can do that around land use. We can do that around farming. We can do that around forestry. We can do that with technology. We can do that around our, the form of our cities and how we treat each other. Catherine, um, you know, the last 30 or 40 years in New Zealand, public policy and around the world in a way, has been a shift from thinking about solutions as something that the state might do or get involved in um, to much more about thinking um, that uh, individuals um, have, you know, rights and responsibilities and that um, non-state uh, actors should should do the thing. What's, what's your thought on, you know, whether um, the the balance or the whether the the um, seesaw, if you like, needs to seesaw back a bit 
um, towards um, you know involving the state or states or um, shared shared bodies because for a long time the idea was you know there is self-interest and that's all that really matters in the end and uh, the government is not the solution the government is the problem Thank you. Well, that's a great question. And this circles back to this issue of, of bottom-up and top-down um, problem-solving and how we try to tackle you know, some of the wicked problems that are, are out here. Uh, we had a lot of discussion about this as a team and across our dialogue process. Uh, the conclusion that we reached is you need both bottom-up and top-down processes to be contributing. There are some things that can be centrally coordinated more effectively, and there are other things that really need to be locally led or at least locally informed and influenced. Um, but one of the other really important ideas that gets uh, surfaced in the guide is drawing on Eleanor Ostrom's polycentric governance, that when you're dealing with large, wicked problems, especially problems involving the global commons, you really need to think about having multiple centers of governance um, at, at multiple levels in the system in order for this to, to function. And I think we're still evolving into what this powerful idea could mean in practice. Um, Troy has uh, been done more work on this than I have and may wish to comment further on that. But it's to me, it's a really interesting intriguing idea. And, and I've experienced this in my former role as one of New Zealand's climate change negotiators, um, that looking at what can and cannot be managed through a single, um, very heavily burdened uh, negotiating process, which has its role in the system, but isn't necessarily where the transformation is going to arise. Troy, do you have a view on, you know, w whether we can do this um, in a centralized way? There always has to be centralization to achieve the benefits of scale. And Ostrom won a Nobel Prize for thinking about this, looking at a lot of case studies, many of which are compatible with indigenous rights and um, social progress, but recognizing that the, the last rule is that we need hierarchies that can extend across scale if we want to solve big problems. There's a set, and I've been talking about this with people and, and coming to the conclusion that Really, it's a system of good governance. There are multiple ones. There's one that's been developed for the health system in New Zealand that we could also look at. One could also look at the, the Maori values and principles um, that are uh, represented in the guide as a, as a reasonable set that helps us solve problems at the scales of interest, where the, the scale those operated was um, largely at the scale of a marae, but that's been extended to organizations and interactions with government. So. I think the important thing is that we think about systems that provide for us to discuss how to have just transitions across scales. And the last thing, and one thing I really do want to emphasize is a real base in the guide is an adaptive cycle. And so a lot of these things like potential political shifts are the conditions which change over time while you're trying to go through a transition if it takes time. And ultimately, one of the important things, and, and Catherine's really the person that pointed this out, a lot of transitions finish. You could actually put an end to them. There has to be a cycle that allows connecting, planning, doing, acting, that is to say, and ultimately adapting, to, that is to say, considering whether it's worked, monitoring. And often we fail to do particular steps in these, and those are the issues that we get into when we look at why things fail. If we're better at going through the full adaptive cycle, we would be better at delivering just transitions in Altera. Just finally, um, you, you're both, you know, you've been uh, neck deep in uh, climate change news, information, policy, 
things. Um, Catherine, you know, when you wake up in a cold sweat in the middle of the night, how do you feel about how it's going? Because in the last week we've had, I think, four of the last five days were brand new average heat records globally. And um, on the face of it, we're, we're not on track to, to keep the temperature down to a level that avoids some sort of risk of a out-of-control, um, you know, catastrophic cascading set of tipping points. Not, not that I want to keep people from sleeping, but how, how do you feel about how it's going? It does keep me up at night. And I do wake, I can wake up in the morning with a sense of impending dread at times. Um, I think in some ways we're not doing ourselves a lot of favors, but what keeps me motivated is the extraordinary potential to do things better and to, um, I I just see so many solutions and possibilities that are out there. And I think that's what gives me the the hope and the optimism to keep going. I I also um, really believe in, in, and and see the evidence of the, the ingenuity and, and I think one of the things I've loved so much about this project is really looking at the potential of just transitions, about what these communities are able to do when they bring together the strengths and the resilience that they have, the diversity that they have, and come up with some creative ways to move forward as a community. I think that's what gives me a, a lot of, of hope for the future. So I think there's there's this enormous potential uh, to change. And what we're, what we're lacking is the social license. I think we, we used to think of, of climate change as being an environmental problem, and then we thought of it as being an economic problem. And now I'm seeing it increasingly as a social problem, because there are so many solutions that are out there that we're not doing because we don't have the social sol- license um, to move people um, through a, a process of change. And it's because we need to demonstrate to people that their well-being will be protected during the process. To me, this, uh, this issue of oranga well-being is at the core of just transitions. And if we could develop better ways of making decisions that safeguard the well-being of our communities, I think we'd be able to move into um, the solutions to climate change more easily. Troy, after this process of um, putting together this guide and um, hearing about the uh, the chats with people, are you more or less confident that we can engineer, so to speak, a just transition? Because the last time we were in a similar massive shift in our economy and our society in the mid-80s, early 90s, we got it wrong. That's right. You know, and I think the, the real awareness that settled on me through being involved in this guide has been how hard it is. On the other hand, I do have a lot of hope that there is another big shift ahead of us and that if it's led by climate finance, if it's led by bringing um, the financial system to bear on climate change, I do have hope because part of what I see in building this guide has been how much struggle there has been without the resourcing communities need and without the listening communities need to make the changes that are needed. And if we can put Oranga well-being first and move forward from there, realizing that that is what finance needs to drive, that ultimately the right processes, just processes, are good for business, good for insurance, good for climate mitigation. Um, We have to develop the vision on the long term for that and make the right decisions. But we can get there. And the work in the guide, including the work that provides at least enough help so that people who wonder, well, what will this mean for Maori land? What will this mean, you know, in terms of who I have to talk to? 
a lot of that initial stuff is there for people to read through and perhaps move faster than they were before. The latest podcast from Christiana Figueres says essentially we need to think about this as five times faster, just as a starting point. And that's a, a good way to think about this. If we're going to do transitions and start thinking about instead of doing not so much, but when we do start, we need to be five times faster. The guide has a lot of tools to help us move at that pace. Well, thank you very much to um, Troy Baston and uh, Catherine Lining for being on When the Facts Change. Thank you, Bruno. Yora, thank you. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.